sexual enhancement, weight loss supplements, and some performance supplements, when, especially when they're mixed, those I would almost never consider taking. You know, like Strength Max, XXX, RAR, those kinds of things I would avoid, like the plague. And in general, like, it's weird that people treat supplements different from drugs because you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like, if your blood pressure was a little high and you'd like, like okay, I'm going to take a ACE inhibitor, an ARB, and a diuretic. I'm going to put them in a blender and drink them in a big shake. Like, you're crazy. Why are you throwing so many things at a single problem? Yet the exact opposite is the case when you're talking about, like, workout supplements. It's like, oh, there's a little bit of evidence for all this. I'm going to throw it in a shake and drink it. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on? I'm excited for today's. Me too. We're going to talk about uh, taking supplements, something that you and I really don't do. And as listeners will learn, when we do it, it certainly is at the level of, uh, of kindergarten, not the varsity team. But um, we, we spend a lot of time talking about nailing the basics and some of the downsides of optimization, whether it's through uh, supplements or sparsely evidenced or not at all evidenced interventions for health, longevity, and performance. And today we are thrilled to have on a doctor of pharmacy who presides over the research program of what I think, I think what you think is probably like the only real trustworthy place on the internet in terms of um, just no bullshit evidence-based data on what we know about a whole range of supplements. Exactly. So we're going to go into what works, what doesn't, how to evaluate it. We've got the expert on to let us know if Brad and I are too skeptical or pessimistic or not. And just as a reminder, the reason that we get to have this conversation where we get to ask what supplements work and what are BS is because we aren't sponsored by a supplement company, which is a large sponsor of many, many podcasts as supplements. Um, so if you feel like supporting us so that we can have these discussions on what works in a no BS way, well, you can do two things. First, check out our Patreon group, which is patreon.com backslash the growth equation. If you join for as little as $5 a month, you'll get access to all sorts of great things like uh, book clubs, mastermind groups, uh, early copies of our books, or sorry, signed copies of our books, and just some behind the scene guides and other things that, that we put together. So check that out. And of course, the other way to support our work to allow us to continue to bring this podcast to you is to buy our books. So my latest do hard things. Brad's latest, The Practice of Groundedness. If you haven't yet, check them out. If you have checked them out, you know, recommend to a friend. Your support goes a long way. Thank you for it. It allows us to have conversations like the one that you're going to hear next. Well, we're really thrilled to have you join us for the show today, Greg. Um, we're so glad that you can make time. So thank you. Thank you for the invite. So is... Our longtime listeners know, and as any new listeners to this episode will quickly find out, Steve and I tend to approach supplementation um, with skepticism bordering on cynicism. So we are really, really glad to have you on the show. For listeners that aren't familiar with examine.com, it has become the go-to place on and off the internet for information about supplements used by coaches, athletes, physicians. And the reason for this is, unlike so many other supplement repositories, examine.com isn't interested in selling you anything. They want to be an evidence-based platform for supplementation. And a part of their commitment to that evidence base is having people on their team like Greg. So Greg, why don't you give us a little bit of information on your background before we dive into the conversation on supplements? 
Sure. So I studied biochemistry and molecular biology as an undergraduate and then moved on to a PhD program in molecular biophysics, where I studied uh, protein-carbohydrate interactions overall. But um, partway through that program, I decided to pivot a little bit and went instead into pharmacy, where I got a PharmD. And then I pivoted again because I saw some interesting stuff on examine.com where they just released uh, in like early 2010s, they released the human effect matrix. And I saw uh, their first round of hiring um, posts on Facebook, one of the few benefits Facebook has ever provided me directly. And I decided to apply because I was somewhat interested in some of the more some of the more actionable things can, that could be done as a pharmacist. So in clinical, I mean, in community pharmacy, when I did my rotations in pharmacy school, one of the things that I really liked was the power of educating patients when they came up and asked about over-the-counter medications as well as supplements, because there you can actually give some useful advice as to what works and what doesn't. And when I saw the human effect matrix on examine.com, which I followed in its early days, I was like, this is really cool because people can take a look at the human effect matrix, which we've since renamed to be the examine database. And you can take a look at like high-level stuff, like whether something works for depression, whether it works for pain, how well it works, and you get an eyeball there. But you could also be a little bit of a nerd about it and say, hey, does this impact specific markers of inflammation like CRP? And you could get a kind of marker there. So I applied and was accepted in the first round of hiring. And um, since then, it, then examine was three people who were hired, um, including me in 2013, along with uh, the, found, the two founders, one a super supplement nerd and one a computer science guy. And since then, we've grown a lot and we aim to try to be an evidence-based database for supplements. And we're slowly in talking about expanding into other actionable things that people can do in order to improve their health on their own. All right. So I want to get in. We're going to talk about all sorts of supplements on this, but I want to start with a high level of, you know, you mentioned this database and it's wonderful. I recommend listeners go over and head over and just browse through it right now. It's it's pretty cool what you can find. But I want to talk about the high level of, you know, maybe for yourself and examine.com, like what the kind of uh, process is like for deciding, you know, what to include, what studies to include, all of that kind of stuff. So the process depends on what product you're taking a look at at examine.com. So we have a few different processes. We have um, something called supplement guides. And the goals of those guides are to give people a quick answer to what should I take and how should I take it? In order to do that, we scour the literature using a semi-systematic process where we craft search strings, go through databases, look at the best evidence, and then kind of synthesize it um, in order to give people the, the answers that they're looking for. And we give some education on the side um, to tell people about basic metrics and some of the nuance. And those are our supplement guides. Our methodology for the examined database, formerly the human effects matrix, is just looking at randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials. The reason why we do that is because we have effect in the former title, human effect matrix. And when it comes to think, figuring out whether something works or not, the most reliable way to do that is with a randomized controlled trial because it allows to control for confounders or things that would influence the outcome of the study and both things you know about and things you don't overall. There are, of course, problems and nuance with randomized controlled trials because not all of them are high quality necessarily. But overall, what we tend to do is to take a look at the randomized controlled trials because that's what gives us the effect. So we don't include observational research in there. And there's also the open question of possibly including things like um, Mendelian randomization that could have a benefit because it could get at causality. But sometimes there's nuance there in terms of um, exposure effect, like a, Mendelian, a good Mendelian randomization trial will show the effect of exposure for a specific thing if it has good instruments in it, it, if it's doing what it says it does, then it'll show the effects of exposure over long periods of time often. And so like that's a different case from supplementation. So do we include that or, or not? That's an open question that we're currently debating behind the scenes. 
Then in terms of our other stuff that we do, we also have this thing called study summaries, where we look at cool, interesting stuff in the realm of health and supplementation and just give quick summaries for people. We sometimes evaluate the quality or make comments about the quality, and sometimes we don't. So that is for more for people who just want to hear about the latest quickly and maybe get some education on the side around that. And so depending on what we're writing about and whom we're writing to, we have somewhat different methodologies for each of our different approaches. So one of the things that you highlighted there that I think is really important is the different types of studies and then the different quality of studies. And I think one of the places where people often get lost in nutrition and especially supplement research is You can generally go on Google Scholar or PubMed and type in a supplement and find some study that says it works in, you know, X population. And I'm wondering if, again, I know this is a big question, but if you could give listeners some of the key attributes that you kind of look at that that tell you whether a study is quality and worth maybe listening to versus one that is like, oh, okay, we might just kind of not include this or put this over to the side. Sure. I mean, I think it's more of an art than a science. And when you take a look at like the systematic ways to evaluate trial quality when you're doing systematic reviews and meta-analyses, you have a bunch of them. And people tend to frown a little bit upon scoring because it is a little bit more of an art than a science, although there are scores out there. And so saying like this is a good, rates good or has a certain specific metric on Pedro, for instance, um, one of the scoring methods, like you can do that, but it's a little misleading. And so I'm not sure if there's like a... There are some rules of thumb that I feel comfortable giving um, and that I take a look in, and that depends on whether it is a randomized controlled trial, observational study, or a meta-analysis and a meta-analysis of what. So overall, I would say like generally the best places where I go to look when I want to figure out a new question that I'm not seeing the answer to an examiner or anywhere else is um, I would look for um, meta-analyses generally. And specifically, I would look for meta-analyses that focus on specific populations because I've seen some, there are some pretty questionable meta-analyses out there. I had a pharmacy student rotate in who um, who does pharmacy rotations for, with examine.com and she just presented a meta-analysis from 2022 on whether um, omega-3 fatty acids can improve glycemic control. And if I present this meta-analysis on the surface, it's I can make it sound very good. Overall, they analyzed, I think, I forget the exact number, it was like 15 studies. It was like a few hundred patient population. And overall, what they found was that there was a small to medium effect um, in improving various metrics of glycemic control. The way I just presented it, it sounds like, yeah, if I if I care about controlling my blood sugar, let me take some fish oil. But then you dig into the details and see some weird things. First of all, they didn't really filter out patient population. They included uh, one study had a population with hepatitis C. Other people had impaired fasting glucose. Other people had full-blown type 2 diabetes. Other people could have been healthy. And so you averaging these effects together into does it work is not nuanced enough for my tastes. And so one of the methods that I recommend to people is if they're trying to answer a question for themselves is to say, who am I most like? And when I'm looking at a randomized controlled trial or a meta-analysis that actually narrows down its patient population, then you have some better, you can be a little more confident that it could apply to you. So am I like the people being studied here? And if they're mushing a bunch of people together, that's kind of drowning out some of the signal that could be applicable to me. So does this apply to me? That's the first thing that I would take a look at. There are some rules of thumb for meta-analyses as well as um, as well as clinical trials. Um, pre-registration is a decent rule of thumb, but when I've looked at some pre-registration, I found that people kind of use it as a seal of approval, where we say this is pre-registered. Go to this uh, go to the go to this database and check it out. And then I check it out, and it's like, hmm, you said you were going to measure these things, and you're not reporting them here. <laughs> um, so it's like it's a rule of thumb, but it doesn't necessarily apply in its entirety. Um, and things like following for meta-analyses, following the basics of Prospero, which is like a way to rigorously do systematic reviews and meta-analyses, is another way. But again, 
this fails. The same meta-analysis I was talking about for omega-3s and glycemic control said they followed Prospero, but yet they could not, they didn't actually provide the full search strings, and so I couldn't reproduce the results. And one of the main points of a systematic review, as opposed to a normal narrative review, is that people could do the same thing as you and repeat it. And if I don't know how you searched, I don't I can't repeat it. So so like a couple of markers are like pre-registration, whether they followed specific guidelines, um, and whether it applies to you. And you can see already the rules of thumb. I've just mentioned three. I can mention more, but they're already building up. And then the question is, how are they actually doing what they're saying they're doing? And how do the costs and benefits of the specific thing you're taking a look at um, how do they contradict or cohere with one another? And so it's a very broad question. Another one is sample size or study length. Um, you could say, hey, like uh, the sample size is pretty small, but you know, you take a look at um, some studies that have a small sample size and they can actually be extremely informative. For instance, um, study design matters. If you have a parallel clinical trial versus a crossover, you get more power there. So a small sample size doesn't hurt you as much. And then you can take a look at um, some studies like uh, Kevin Hall's seminal 19, uh, 2019 work on um, ultra-processed foods and whether they cause people to eat more. Sample size of 20. And you could say, mm, sample size of 20, but that was an excellent study that really it drove home the fact that ultra-processed foods can lead to higher caloric intake. And so, yeah, you could poo-poo on it in a lot of common ways and say, yeah, this is a, this is a very highly controlled study, but that was kind of the point um, to prove a specific hypothesis. So the best kind of research kind of takes a look at that. So sample size is okay. One, thing, one rule of thumb that I think is pretty good is if you care about a clinical outcome, look at the clinical outcome um, and not markers. Um, if you care about pain and you think the pain is caused by inflammation – and you have a study that looks at the actual pain metrics versus the clinical markers for inflammation, I'd go with the pain metrics because that's what you care about. If you could lower your CRP or reduce other markers of inflammation and had zero effect on your pain or anything biologically, would you care about it? Um, probably not. So the goal is solve the problem you're actually looking for. Take a look at if there's a study that measures pain, take a look at pain. I could go on, but I've talked a lot, so I'll pause there. All right. So this is great stuff. And now I want to shift into the, well, what works, what doesn't, because that's what's on everyone's mind. And, and maybe I should start by saying, does anything work? But because it's so broad and because it's so nuanced, to your point, well, what works for what, for whom, when, let's start with me is the prototypical example. So I'm just, you know, you can tell the examine folks that um, I'll reimburse if, if needed for this consult. So I'm 36-year-old male, and I want to live as long as possible because I like life, and I want to live with as much function as possible, and I care about my performance in strength and power sports, but not at the cost of my longevity. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm quite skeptical, bordering on cynicism amongst a lot of claims about supplements. So let's start with what I take. And I'm just going to ask you like, to opine if it's a home run, if maybe, if maybe I should reconsider it. And then I have a couple that I've jotted down that I don't take, but I know some friends that use these supplements as well. And, and then maybe we can go over to Steve and then you can tell us what we're missing and, and, and the nuance behind each of these. So the first thing I'd say, and I don't even know if you'd consider this a supplement, is I put whey protein in a smoothie just to help me meet my protein goals. And um, right now my protein goals are at least one and a half grams of protein per kilogram. Um, and if I can get a little bit more, great. So whey protein, are we buying or selling? I would say probably buy for the most part. And protein is one of those things where um, whey protein is probably overall painting with a broad brush. It is a one of the best forms of supplemental protein you can get. So that is Perfect. That's perfectly reasonable. And also protein is one of the few things where I'd kind of say probably more people need more of it. So the recommended daily allowance is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that is based off of meh, questionable data overall. Um, I would probably recommend like at least a gram per kilogram of body weight, more depending on what people do. And this is an interesting thing that you could sort of paint with a broad, broader brush because Overall, you find people like older people who don't exercise, who are trying to maintain bone mass and fight off sarcopenia. 
they can still benefit. They'll, they'll benefit more if they can safely do resistance training along with it, but they could still benefit from increased protein, usually around 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram. Um, and then as people get more into resistance training, you probably need more going um, a pretty, yeah, pretty high, roughly two grams per kilogram for people who are heavily into resistance training is perfectly good. And there's some concerns about um, kidney function and stuff, but the evidence is mi- mixed and only tends, if you want to be cautious, it really applies to people with pre-existing kidney problems. So there's a little bit of nuance there and there's still actually a little bit of debate around that. So, um, you know, I wouldn't put protein in the water or anything, but I think many people could benefit from increased protein intake. The other problem is um, if you're taking in protein uh, via foods, you're then also cr- increasing your caloric intake. And so, um, I mean, you're r- increasing it regardless, but you're going to be taking in other calories besides protein. And so supplemental protein does make a bit of sense and whey protein is a pretty good way to get there. So I would say that's overall a buy. Okay, one more question on the protein. Now I'm getting into the, the the fitness nerds here. I've heard that your body can only metabolize about 40 grams of protein at once and that the rest is likely just going to come out in your urine. So let's say I want to hit my upper target of 200 grams of protein a day. 200 divided by 40, that's 45 times a day. It's doable, but I'm not a pro athlete. That's kind of a lot of like every three hours, I must have a turkey sandwich or two Greek yogurts or a whey protein smoothie. How important is the timing of nutrients? And is that fable of 40 grams is the the most that your body can take in? Um, is there truth to that? Um, I'm a little sketchy on the details of that. Um, so I don't remember the specific data, uh, the specific studies, but my overall vague impression of dosing is that it's mostly a fable, but it's also kind of hard to take in all of it at once. And so it's, it's splitting it is perfectly fine. Got it. Okay. So then my next question um, revolves around the, and I'm going in order of my confidence that they're actually helping me. So this is a supplement um, that I've started taking for the last two years since I got more serious about strength training. It's creatine monohydrate. And um, I think I know what you're going to say because unless I've terribly misread the database, but I take this because of examine.com. So I grew up in the age of creatine destroys your kidneys. It's terrible for you. It's only what meatheads take. And I remember desperately wanting to take it when I was playing high school football because I was a good high school football player. And like my parents being like, no, and they asked the doctor and the doctors, you would have thought it was a steroid. So fast forward over 20 years and I'm getting more back into performance-driven strength training. And my strength coach is like, oh, you you should take creatine, see if you respond. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to ruin my kidneys. And then I went to examine.com and at least two and a half years ago, it was pretty clear that um, outside of people with existing kidney disease, it, it seems not to have a deleterious effect on your kidneys. And I'm certainly a responder. When I started taking creatine, I gained about five pounds and all my lifts went up by like 3%. It was actually an enormous effect, much bigger than I could have ever imagined. Um, and since then, I've I've heard, and I don't know if there's truth to this, that uh, creatine monohydrate might also be protective against some neurodegenerative disease. So is this just motivated reasoning so I can keep hitting PRs in the gym or is creatine monohydrate a useful supplement for performance and perhaps beyond? Yeah, so creatine is pretty interesting and in that it's like a thing you could kind of do an entire podcast on getting into the nuance of. And so the very short answer to your question is that creatine is one of my go-to supplements to say like the evidence is pretty good um, that it works, but works for what? Mainly uh, like fast twitch mus- muscle action, uh, power strength and v- uh, muscle volume. So there the evidence is pretty clear in my view that it works for a lot of people. It may not work for everybody. And personal experimentation is something that people can supplement with themselves because just because it works on average does not mean it will work for you and vice versa because something does not work on average does not mean it won't work for you. So overall, yes, creatine for um, things that require strength, power, and muscle mass is pretty well um, supported. And the way in which it's supported is kind of interesting because you can compare it to fish oil because they're 
they're supported sort of in different ways um, for different indications. But um, the, the scientific base, like it's a nice comparison between the two about the quality of research. But as far as creatine goes, you don't have like major, huge landmark trials saying like creatine works because we d- uh, took a bunch of weightlifters for four years and measured all these things. And it was a very well-controlled, randomized controlled trial. And so we have a bunch of small trials of uh, good to not so good quality. But they all kind of point in the same direction um, that it works for these specific instances. And also, another interesting thing about creatine is that it works outside, like when people are testing creatine for other stuff, like these indications about cognition and stuff that you talked about. There was one trial, I think, in people with fibromyalgia where they did creatine supplementation, found no effect on pain, which is what you'd care about probably if you had fibromyalgia, but they did find actually muscle strength increases. And so when you look at like all of these small signals from from maybe sometimes bad, but meh studies to good studies, but they all vaguely point in a direction, like an example where you're taking a fibromyalgic population and they st- still see increases in strength, like um, that tells you, yeah, I'm pretty confident that creatine works, but it's not because there's bang, knockdown, bang up evidence in a single trial that it works, but because the totality of the evidence points in that direction. But then the question is, what is your goal? Because some people also hear like creatine can possibly help with um, delayed onset muscle soreness, or maybe people are mixed athletes and they care about um, VO2 max. And there's interesting, some, some interesting, somewhat recent research taking a look at these populations and seeing like the results for DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness is like a little mixed, but you know, if you're already taking creatine because you know it works for strength and you also want to help with that, meh, probably won't hurt. Um, but in terms of like VO2 max, there's actually a meta-analysis that came out a couple of years ago, if I recall correctly, that showed that people had, it was a small impact, but it actually reduced VO2 max in people who were training. And so if you want to go for it for muscle size, strength, and power, then go for it. But even things like creatine, there may be uh, nuance in that if you're also want to uh, if you're also an endurance runner then hmm, maybe rethink it the effect size is small but if you are a competitive runner a small effects matter and that's another thing going back to your previous question about like what to think about like um, when you're taking a look at studies look at the effect size and ask if the effect size is worth it to you if you're in pain and it reduces it a tiny amount probably it's not worth it for you unless that tiny amount is i mean the only way to know is to try in some senses but if you're like a athlete who really is pushing boundaries then small effect sizes still matter for me at the gym where i'm kind of just doing things for general health and i'm not kind of trying to be ultra performance maxed out a small effect size wouldn't matter so the answer to the question of whether you should take it depends on where you are and what you want to do In terms of the kidney health stuff, overall, yeah, the evidence has been leaning in the direction that overall it doesn't matter for kidney health overall. For healthy people, moderately certain, although in general when you're looking at safety versus efficacy, um, the safety data in supplements, like supplementation science is already a little fuzzy. Um, It's not like pharmaceutical trials where you have pretty good research, and even then there are problems, but you have some pretty good research. Um, overall, the thing about overall the thing about like uh, the safety is that there you have small sample sizes. You can't really see statistically what's going on, and a lot of people don't even report it. So um, the safety stuff is concerning, um, and you have to rely on weak signals there. But the weak signal that VO two max could be impacted by creatine is something to keep in mind when considering whether to take it. As far as the kidney stuff goes, even in people with some kidney problems, it's looking okay-ish, but they probably have bigger fish to fry. So um, whether they supplement creatine, they should probably be handling the root causes of the kidney problems and managing that um, with a doctor rather than thinking about creatine except in specific circumstances. Okay. So then my, my next one, and it's the only one that I currently take in addition and um, I'll just admit here why I started taking it. There's a physician that I follow on Twitter who I think is just really smart and thoughtful. And um, one day I saw that he takes a omega-3 fish oil in a specific brand and he takes it for overall cardiovascular health. And I looked and it's like that fine wine effect. You know, it was just expensive enough where I'm like, ooh, this might really work. Um, but not so expensive that we couldn't afford it. So I spend about a dollar a day on some Nordic, I'm forgetting the exact brand name, fish oil. 
And I don't really even know why I take it other than this physician, I'm not going to name names, said like, it, you know, it's, it's useful for cardiovascular health. Um, I will add that I don't eat that much fish in my diet, but I'd say maybe once a week we have like a salmon filet. And then I go in phases of consuming a ton of tuna and not any tuna. Um, but it's not like I'm on a Mediterranean diet or anything like that. So is this just expensive urine or is there maybe a there there? Yeah, fish oil is interesting, and it's a ni- it's a nice comparison to creatine in terms of like the evidence base and how evidence works in supplementation. Because one of the things that we're sort of blessed with to some degree is that there are some recent clinical trials looking at pharmaceutical grade fish oil, namely Strength, which looked at uh, Lavaza, and Reduce It, which looked at Vasepa. Um, and these are just kind of pharmaceutical versions of fish oil, and these are interesting and well designed studies, but. Um, it, it's a take-home message that even when you have the backing of big pharma and designing studies, things can still go wrong because they came to different conclusions in terms of cardiovascular health um, for very interesting reasons. And it's one of the reasons why you can't just like pick the study you want and say it works and therefore it's definitely going to work. So, um, so in terms of fish oil, the one thing it really does do that we're quite certain of, I'd probably say it, I'm more certain of it than even creatine's effect on muscle mass and strength and power. Um, but I'm pretty confident of that. I'm even more confident that fish oil in decent enough doses will reduce um, triglyceride levels in the blood. Um, it'll do that. But the question is, does this actually matter to anything you care about? Um, and in that case, um, the answers are mixed. So going back to those pharmaceutical trials, one trial found that it actually really did impact um, impact uh, cardiovascular outcomes, the stuff people care about. Um, and another trial said it didn't. And the interesting thing and the biggest reason for this possibly is the, the choice of placebo. Um, in the trial where it found an impact, they, the placebo is mineral oil, which could increase inflammation and actually increase the risk for um, bad cardiovascular things happening. Um, and the other one, it was corn oil, which was better. It probably is more inert. And so the choice of placebo may have magnified the differences. And so there's still a debate in the medical literature for pharmaceutical-grade fish oil about whether it does anything cardiovascular-wise. And this kind of highlights the problem with, like, the, trying to interpret the literature. You can paint the rosy picture that because the placebo, like, caused unhealthy things to happen, um, then and it showed a bigger effect, then... The, the fish oil showed a bigger effect. You could argue that maybe for patient populations where they're pretty unhealthy and inflamed and stuff, then you could say actually fish oil would be a particularly good choice for them and we could be confident it works. But at the same time, going back to kind of the basics, I think um, on the growth equation uh, statement, you kind of say the, base, the basics are what's important and they're simple but not easy. But if somebody is um, pretty sick in some ways, they're much better tackling the, the sickness with exercise, diet changes, and probably other lifestyle changes rather than throwing a supplement on top of it. In terms of fish oil and its other benefits, it, it does everything. It washes your dishes, it lowers inflammation. it uh, uh, Which is why make- I'm skeptical, um, <laughs> right. you know, immediately. And, 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 and yet here I am taking it once a day out of a nice fancy package. And maybe I'm just getting a good placebo. Maybe it's doing nothing. Yeah. Um, and so overall, I would probably say <clears throat> for the other stuff, it probably goes into the meh category. And it could... Like, it depends on where you're getting it from. And I think another question we could probably tackle usefully is, like, how do you know what's a good brand of supplement? But, like, fish oil could, in theory, cause harm. If you have a crappy supplement that has mercury in it and you're taking it for a long time, you're going to poison yourself. Um, And if you get a bad quality fish oil that's oxidized, it's not going to do anything and may cause some harm as well. And so... There are ways in which each supplement can not can cause some harm, and caution is warranted. I have like rules of thumb for like when to be a little more skeptical and say maybe I shouldn't take this. Fish oil is like a middling one; it's not as bad as like um, a sexual enhancement combo where like those things are just filled with whatever. Um, but um, it, it has it could have its problems, and so you want to make sure you're getting quality for the other stuff. It does tackle things but even like when i was taking a look at inflammation like inflammation is the cause of like it it realistically is a problem for a lot of people and it could cause harm but then there's nuance in fish oil and inflammation i reviewed two meta-analyses um taking a look at two different populations one in people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and it found that it reduced inflammation there as measured by high sensitive sensitivity uh crp but then there was another study that looked in people with uh 
poly, uh, polycystic over ovarian syndrome, uh, PCOS, and there, there was no effect. And so for healthy people, it's still kind of a shrug. Um, it's hard to see whether this is really doing anything. Um, and you could think about it mechanistically because um, it, this gets incorporated all over the place. It does seem to do a lot. We don't make much from like the we don't make much of the oils found in fish oil from things like aloe. We can do it very slowly, but maybe we need to supplement it. Um, our people's in the West's omega six to omega three ratios are off, and so maybe it would be good. You could come up with all these theoretical reasons. And those can go into your own personal choice. I'm not against personal choice, but when breaking broad statements, and in fact, I encourage it because we're dealing with such a, such a broad area where the evidence is not great from a scientific perspective. And so feeding scientific um, evidence into your own personal trials, I think, is critical to figuring out whether something works for you. And I do encourage it. And also going to forums for rare diseases or for peak performance, listening to people's personal experiences, not scientific evidence, but given that the scientific evidence can be meh around some circumstances, I'd recommend it. So overall, fish oil lowers your triglycerides, could maybe not be completely harmless. Um, And also... Um, the uh, evidence for all of its other benefits are meh. Like the cognition benefits mainly come from older people. And so maybe when you start, um, like as a 36-year-old male, maybe it works if you keep on taking it forever. Maybe it doesn't. Or maybe there are going to be long-term consequences that aren't fully hashed out yet that you're going to experience down the road. And the question is only one that you could answer based on your own risk profile. Do you take fish oil? Yes. For bad reasons, just like you. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love it. We're all susceptible. Okay, we're all susceptible. I, I want to shift the conversation away from Brad and more to more my personal interests. So Brad's over there lifting weights. I'm over here running and focused on endurance. So I want to start with the performance side. So this isn't as much me now, but me ten years ago, we'll say, who cares about running faster, who cares about his VO2 max and performance and all that stuff. What are the things for an endurance athlete where you said, "Hey"? You know, this evidence is all right. I'd I'd look at this from performance. You can. I'm just going to name a bunch of stuff, but take it wherever you want to go. You know, you hear about beta alanine and caffeine and beetroot and even sodium bicarbonate, like all these various things that will help your performance. Take that where you want it. Yeah. So, like sodium bicarbonate has mixed evidence. Like these things are probably worth trying. I'd probably say out of those things, like the creatine is interesting because it may have a slight detriment to endurance athletes, and so that's something to consider. But I'd probably say the biggest things, like um, good old caffeine. Like caffeine um, is overlooked by some people because it's not a new sexy supplement that has weird letters or comes from some herb grown in Asia. Um, But caffeine works for a lot a lot of things so um and it's pretty good on um it's pretty good for endurance as well um both muscular endurance and perhaps um like endurance exercise as well so if you want to boost you take caffeine the other things are um nitrates um getting those like before training or before performance that seems to be pretty well founded um the problem with nitrates um is that as you get higher in trading status as you become more elite, the effect, although I say this with low certainty, but the effect seems to decrease. But, and it's an open question whether it decreases to not worth considering or um, still worth considering. Because again, if you are actually competitive, then every little edge you can get will still make you make you better in performance. And so nitrates could be a useful supplement there and probably one of the more evidence-based ones. And another thing is just getting protein in general. Um, protein generally helps as well as probably the things you're familiar with in terms of basic carb, lo- carb loading. I'm not too familiar with the specifics because I'm not an endurance athlete. But um, in general, that's pretty well established to watch your carbs as well. So overall, um, caffeine, nitrates, um, protein, and carbs are kind of the way to go in terms of endurance athletes. And there are other things that are like minor that you could experiment with, but the evidence isn't as good. Yeah. Okay. Love it. That gives us a good foundation. Now I want to shift. Okay. We talked about performance a little bit. Now a little bit more to health. So Brad talked about the things that he takes. The only thing I really take is a multivitamin for just covering my basics. What do you think about, again, we'll call it generic multivitamins. And then I'd also love to hear your thought on We'll call it the more the the Designer Rolls Royce, yeah the Rolls Royce version of it that kind of gets 
you know, popularized around. And can I add one more thing, Steve, to this? Because I think they, they kind of sell it as a multivitamin, athletic greens. Um, and I don't, you know, if you're not comfortable talking about a specific brand, we could talk about greens powders. That's just the one that everyone hears about on all these podcasts. So I don't take a multivitamin. So this is interesting. So let's see where this goes. Yeah. So multivitamins for general health are, um, interesting overall, for the most part, they, they lean toward not doing a whole lot, but there are interesting signals that are seen in a couple of pretty big and landmark studies. Um, there was one that came out somewhat recently, uh, Cosmos Mind, that took a look at uh, cocoa as well as a multivitamin. Um, and surprisingly, cocoa um, did nothing for the most part. And the authors were surprised by this too, but they actually found um, that um, multivitamins in older people um, to actually increased cognition. Um, and that's something that's interesting if you followed up on. And it seemed to increase cognition in people who had um, pre-established cardiovascular disease. And so I, I tend to like, I care from my pharmacy background and stuff about like helping people prevent or like work with diseases they have and prevent them for the most part. I'm less performance oriented because I'm more about general health. Um, but overall, like there are some interesting signals that maybe older people, especially those who are sick with some kind of cardiovascular stuff may benefit from multivitamins. Um, and the physician's health study found like a multivitamin reduced secondary cancer risk. That could be a statistical blip because that's like a secondary outcome and primary. Yeah. So it, it may be a blip, but at the same time, if you have some uh, family history of cancer, that could be something to consider. And there are some nuances there as well. And also, uh, I think in the physician's health study, it did prevent death, but again, it was um, mainly at very old age. And so overall multivitamin, if it's well formulated, I'm not super up on like the designer Rolls Royce runs. The basic uh, multivitamins seem to be like, it may not hurt. Um, you could be just wasting your money, but there's some interesting blips that if you care enough about longevity, may be worth taking a look at. Love it. I should start taking my multivitamin. Um, I want to go back to omega-3s real quick. You mentioned asking for a friend that, um, that there's some risk of uh, just ingesting too much mercury. How, in your own omega-3 use, how do you go about making sure that you're taking something that, hey, even if it doesn't help, at least there's a low probability that it's going to hurt? Yeah, so I'm just kind of, so I can't mitigate the risk for long term. Like if there was pure omega-3 and omega-3 did something weird that people couldn't predict um, in 20 years times, it makes me grow a third arm or something, <laughs> um, then I can't, uh, then I, you just can't predict that. When you're always adding something, it could benefit or it could harm. So that's just a shrug. As far as quality, there are some things to mitigate it. Um, so generally, for important stuff that I'm taking long-term, and not everybody takes stuff long-term. I know the director of examine.com, uh, Kamal, is more of an experimenter. He takes stuff, does some informal-ish, um, taking a look at whether it works or not, and then drops it depending on the problems that are currently presenting for him. If you're going to take something long-term, you would just at least want to make sure that it is trustworthy and that there's not garbage in it. And so there are a few like different ways to check that. Unfortunately, because the way they're supplements are regulated or not really regulated in the United States, we have to turn to third parties in order to see what's good in the supplement in general, including fish oil. So there are a few. That, uh, so essentially, you could look for a seal of approval of sorts from some select organizations in order to do this. So there's Consumer Lab, um, which is pretty good. Um, there's Labdoor. You could actually get a subscription to Consumer Lab, and personally, I do have one, um, where they actually buy supplements off the shelf and test them to see what's in them, whether they meet their um, the actual values and stuff like that. Um, there's also... Um, USP, United States Pharmacopoeia, which should not be confused with USP Labs, which was a sketchy supplement company that kind of borrowed part of the name and got into a lot of trouble. Um, but USP, NSF, and recently Underwriter Laboratories, UL, the people who like test electrical cords and stuff have gotten into this as well. So if you find a certification, like um, either by getting a subscription um, to some of these services, or if you're just looking on the shelf and you see these specific names, that increases confidence that at least you're getting a quality ingredient. Whether that ingredient does harm in the long run, nobody can say, but at least you're getting what it says on the bottle. Um, and there's not garbage in it for the most part. So that's a very good rule of thumb when buying supplements. And if you 
could afford buying supplements, you could probably afford a subscription to one of these services because they're not too expensive and they're very worthwhile. So that's how I personally do it. I have a personally subscription to Consumer Lab. If I want to choose a supplement, then I take a look at what um, is in it. But also, one has to be careful. Uh, I have a weird, interesting story of um, I had a major brand that I'm not going to name because I don't have good lawyers. Um, where I they had like quality assurance on on their bottle. Um, it was actually fish oil, and I switched fish oil brands because of this. Um, and I actually tried to contact the company. I was like, "Hey, you say you test your supplements, and like, can I see the data? Like, when was it last tested? What was the uh, analysis? Do you have the sheet that shows the stuff?" And they're like, "Sorry, it's." proprietary information we can't share it with you but we we do it and it's totally safe don't worry about it and i'm like hey, i'm kind of worried about it <laughs> so um i switched brands over it so there are a lot of people who like say like um tested in an fda lab or something like that and it's like well the fda doesn't test in labs they labs can voluntarily certify um and it may have some benefits but um the, the fda you know, doesn't like say this is a great lab to do. It's not a mark of quality per se. And they don't say like, you know, they were last tested in 2009 and they failed their inspection. That's still an FDA, sort of uh, an FDA inspected lab, right? Um, so there's look, avoid marks of fake quality. Like totally, we looked at it and it's great. Gold star versus people like Consumer Lab, which puts seals on it, USP, UL, Labdoor, NSF. Those are a little more trustworthy. So, uh, one more question, um, not on fish oil, but in the same vein of supplements for general health, so not for performance. Um, is there anything else that listeners might want to consider? I think that I've gone through my supplement stack. I could hardly call it a stack because it's so so small. My supplement, uh, I don't even know what you call it, my, my minor array. So we're buying whey protein, especially if you are an athlete but perhaps just generally to get enough protein. We're buying creatine monohydrate if you don't have underlying kidney disease. We're, it sounds like buying a daily multivitamin if you can afford it and if it's well-formulated. We're dealer's choice on fish oil with a maybe don't take it, but I take it and you take it. So listeners, take it for what it's worth. Is there anything else that someone that just says, I want to live a long, healthy, functional life I'm overwhelmed by Andrew Huberman's podcast and the 48 supplements that he discusses. Does anything else bend the needle in a way where the cost benefit makes sense to you and your team based on all the extensive research that you've done? Overall, I would I lean a little bit toward vitamin D, but vitamin D is a mixed bag. Um, a lot of people have lower levels of vitamin D, but there's a um, big problem with vitamin D and setting like correct levels. If you're below, uh, if you're below 20, like you are clearly like in deficiency territory, you're like in, you're in deficiency territory, but there's these other cutoffs and, um, things got complicated really quickly because people realized that the way you measure blood levels of vitamin D varied from lab to lab. And there's a project going on now that tries to standardize vitamin D metrics. But if you try to do a meta-analysis on vitamin D and what the cutoff should be based on blood levels, you may not get a good answer because vitamin D metrics for blood levels is, was not standardized and now there's a push for it. So like, um, and plus vitamin D is one of those disappointing things that sounded good in theory. Vitamin D receptors are all over the body um, and it does a whole lot. And yeah, that's all true, but that doesn't mean you need to put a pill of it in your mouth. Um, but at the same time, people don't get outdoors a lot um, and probably lower doses, maybe slightly above what um, the RDA is, um, is perfectly safe for the most part. But even then, there's some nuance. Like, for instance, there's a signal for vitamin D in older women um, that they tend to fall more. It may, may actually be making their muscles weaker. And this is a common thread that I've seen in a couple of studies. Um, and it's not a strong signal, but it's like, a, mm, like if I were to tell my grandma whether to take vitamin D or not, um, I would say not above 1,000 uh, IU because um, that's the kind of cutoff where you start seeing possible detrimental musculoskeletal effects in it um, for older people leaning toward women. So um, maybe vitamin D because people tend to be a little low in that. But for the most part, my philosophy is pretty different. And I think protein's kind of a clear-cut case where people need more of it as long as they're not putting on unhealthy amounts of wheat when trying to get it, um, uh, especially as fat, by just consuming more foods. But for the most part, then I think I'm really in the philosophy that most of the stuff you're doing 
to for your general health should be in the form of decent diet and good basic exercise. The essentials are simple but not easy. The places where I tend to encourage supplementation a little more are in use cases where people are willing are okay with the risk um, and also that they um, that the be- possible benefits are really they really want them. And the two big classes of people I put that into are um, people who are um, competitive athletes because every little bit helps in the competition and people who are sick with some kind of chronic illness where normal stuff may not even be helping. Maybe a third category is I'm kind of satisfied with what I'm doing now but need to boost a little. But in all those cases, there's a specific problem that needs to be solved. And in that case, I encourage people to look for a supplement like through the examine database and stuff like that that tackles the problem you want to solve. And if it has knock-on benefits like fish oil, like if you want to lower your triglycerides, but also and maybe cognition-ish, maybe inflammation-ish, depending on the population, um, then that's actual extra benefit and kind of leans more to, okay, I'll take fish oil because I want to lower my triglycerides. It works for that. And it has these other knock-on benefits. In terms of supplementation and general health, I really just think it's diet and exercise. I think supplementation should be targeted to specific problems and health is a problem, but you have to get a little more specific than that. What are, are there any, because, you know, I, I think it's important because I, we don't know what our listeners are out there dealing with, but are there any specific problems that perhaps um, traditional medical care is thorny on or um, there's not really a clear pathway? You know, the most recent example, long covid Prior to that, you mentioned fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, some of these conditions that are slightly more ambiguous that the the traditional healthcare system doesn't necessarily have their handle around. Does anything come to mind for you, Greg, where you're like, oh, wow, like there's some pretty convincing research that, hey, if you're struggling from Lyme and all your doctors are telling you just take the antibiotic, but you're still not getting better, you might want to try this or that. And, And I'm using Lyme as an arbitrary example. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on the circumstance there. In general, like things that are inflammatory, like uh, the properly formulated curcumin is pretty promising um, for things like anxiety where an SSRI isn't working or something. Like ashwagandha has some pretty interesting um, okay evidence for that, but we're all going into the kind of okay territory. But for people like that, it it really depends on the specific circumstance again. uh, yeah, fish oil is, you know, could lower inflammation, although the, the problem about pro- things that the traditional medical industry doesn't have a good handle on is there's no real good data regardless. And you kind of have to go into this less clear field. And I think like the examined stuff can help with that, but you kind of have to take a look at your own system your own problems and then experiment on top of that. So like using e- the examined database as a a starting point, then getting good quality supplements from like place like Consumer Lab, and then trying it, doing a test retest. Um, like there's one supplement that uh, I take because my as I aged, my blood pressure creeped up a little bit, and so I took a supplement that has theoretical reasons why it could work, but also a lot of theories, th- theoretical reasons why it couldn't work, and it still worked for me. And I did that; I verified via test retest. So I'm hesitant to say like, yeah, take this single thing. There are general things for inflammation, like curcumin, and like. Um, and like fish oil that maybe could help, but it really requires personal experimentation and an inventory of personal symptoms. All right. I just want to interject real quick, and I'm going to ask you about the blood pressure in this vein too, because I think it's so important. The supplement that you mentioned for anxiety, what was that called again? Ashwagandha. So you said that if an SSRI isn't working, perhaps ashwagandha. I think what a lot of people do is they say, I don't want to take an SSRI It's big pharma. They're hard to come off. Um, So I'm just going to go right to the supplement because it's natural. And in the case of your hypertension, I'd also be curious if you're comfortable sharing. Of course, I'm not going to ask you to divulge medical uh, information that's yours, but like, did you attempt to take something more standard? In my bias, right, I, I take an SSRI for OCD. I'm in the process of trying to taper off. We'll see if I taper all the way off. I'm very much of the like. The FDA, for all of its flaws, Big Pharma, for all of the real issues, like at least it's going through some sort of approval process. Ashwagandha, that sounds like it might mess me up. But I think a lot of people jump to the opposite. So I'm really curious how you think about that. Um, And then I'll shut up and turn it back over to Steve. Yeah, I mean, I understand people's frustration and I taking a wild guess at some people's motivations. Um, Like, Going to the doctor sucks. Um, 
you have to wait in the office. You have to wait several hours. The guy may give you five minutes of your time. Some may or some may not. Then you have to deal with insurance, and then you get a surprise bill later. That's not supposed to happen, but it does. Like It's a bad process. And so part of the reason I think the motivation for turning to supplements is you don't have to deal with that crap. And I feel you, because it, it sucks. Um, at the end, there are also some sketchy things. I wouldn't say sketchy, actually. Like the standard of care for treatments like depression and stuff is like, it'll take some rotation of SSRIs in order to find one that works. And even then you don't necessarily have a great chance of doing it, uh, doing it. I add on top of that, you have to wait six weeks in order to see an effect. And that's a long time when you're feeling depressed. So like that, but that's the best answer the medical establishment has. But I think that's roughly the, like still you have, I don't think you're going to do necessarily better with supplementation. You could, and it's easier for you to access. And in that sense, if you want to experiment, then go ahead because you could literally just order something off the internet. Um, hopefully that you know what's in it by using the methods I described previously or getting something with a good seal of approval on it and trying it for yourself. There's lots fewer barriers there. And there are some places where you know, people like the medical establishment will just shrug and there are chronic conditions where you'll hear um, from doctors just lose weight when you're like a BMI of 26 or, <laughs> or um, I don't know what's going on. Good luck, pal. Um, that'll be $1,000, please. Um, that's all frustrating. And I do encourage experimentation, looking on forums and people's personal experiences and examine.com to get hypotheses and then trying it for yourself. But sometimes, like, I really think like, like another supplement that kind of works is like St. John's wort for depression, um, specifically mild to moderate. Um, but there's also dangers there because St. John's wort interacts with everything. And if somebody is like taking an antidepressant of a, cer a certain kind of antidepressant that's metabolized in the liver, and then they say, mm, it's working pretty well, but I want a little boost with St. John's wort, they're going to screw everything up because those things interact. Um, so I think you have to be cautious for the most part. And I feel, yeah, some for the stuff where you're not getting good answers from your doctor, you know, you then definitely take a look and explore things for yourself, taking a look at your symptoms and stuff. I can't give broad answers to that, but there are some things that also like are, are somewhat clear or at least have a good foundation on which to go off of like how to manage um, like depression or anxiety, for instance. And some of them are not pharma, like CB, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is um, quite effective for a bunch of different disorders. I used to be on an, anti an SSRI myself. I tapered off completely under a doctor's supervision, and it was um, done not with, uh, not with uh, ashwagandha or, or St. John's Ward. It was done with CBT and changing things in my head. Um, and that's what worked for me. But what may work for you is very different. So please take a look at the data. Use that as a hypothesis. Generate an experiment. But we don't know, so there's no bang, whiz-bang definite answers out there. Okay, I want to I want to finish up with this question which is kind of the opposite of what works, which is you probably hear of so many popular supplements that people take. Are there any that come to your mind where you're just like, "Oh, people take these and there's no good evidence or this could backfire." The things that seem to be almost faddish that in your head you're just like, "No. Those are those are sell, not buy." there's so many, it's hard to keep up. So I'm not great about that. I tend to kind of look at, again, the classical chronic conditions and think about kind of what works. And like, I mean, over the, over the top of my head, like I, there are things that I just would almost never consider such as like the biggest base rate of problem stuff is in like sexual enhancement, um, testosterone boosting, well, almost nothing worse. Go lift if you want to lift if you want to boost testosterone. Um, and there are like other sketchy things that you could maybe do, but they're usually um, adulterated supplements and stuff like that. And um, but like sexual enhancement, weight loss supplements, and um, and some performance supplements, when especially when they're mixed, um, those I would almost never consider taking. I take there's one. Things So I, I have injuries from my young days that catch up as you're older. Um, so I have some osteoarthritis from that was aggravated by previous injuries. And I take one combination, but it's from a source I trust. And it's just a combination of two things that, uh, or is it three things? Two, th two things that I uh, care about. Um, and it's just a convenient form to take. So that's why I take it. But like, um, you know, like strength max, XXX, RAR, those kinds of things I would avoid like the plague. And in general, like, it's weird that people treat supplements different from drugs because you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like if your blood pressure was a little high and you'd like, okay, I'm going to take a ACE inhibitor, an ARB and a diuretic, I'm going to 
put them in a blender and drink them in a big shake like you're crazy Poly- this is that's called polypharmacy there's a word for it and and people in the healthcare industry tend to frown upon it why are you throwing so many things at a single problem yet the exact opposite is the case when you're talking about like workout supplements it's like oh there's a little bit of evidence for all this i'm going to throw it in a shake sh- shake and drink it and i'm like eh like, first of all, you don't know what's necessarily working out of that if it does work. And secondly, like, there could be knock-on effects that are not great for you. Oh, I love that answer. Because that that is that sums up the exercise performance world so much. It's like, let's mix this random combination of ingredients and hope it works. And those are often the ones that are also contaminated with something that uh, isn't supposed to be in there. Um well, I, you know, Greg, this has been really insightful and enlightening. Thanks for being peppered with questions on does this work? Does this not work? Obviously, what you came, what you showed so clearly is that there's individuality of it, both in terms of the effect it has, but also your kind of risk profiles and, and what you care about. And I, I think that nuance came across very clear for our, our listeners. Um, if you were, if our listeners are like, this conversation was great. Obviously, you know, um, we're pointing them to examine.com, but if someone wants to learn more about this, what avenue or suggestions would you have? Uh, in general, yeah, I mean, I think examine.com is a very good resource. And um, I mean, you could also search Google Scholar and PubMed for specific things. Hopefully you got some clue about um, like how to evaluate the literature. And again, if you like are suffering with a chronic condition or um, if you uh, really want to eke out specific gains, I would not discount the um, general internet and people's experiences. I don't have like a specific thing besides you know going to uh, scientific supplementation on Reddit and stuff like that. That that you'll get a mix of interesting advice, but you'll get some interesting input there. Our co-founder was a moderator for scientific supplementation on Reddit, and that's kind of how Examine was founded. So, as the evidence from the science view gets sketchier, feel free to experiment and. Um, learn from other people's experiences because that's what that's the evidence that you have before you so even while i'm a little conservative and examine tends to be a little leans publicly like a little bit conservative as well in terms of this i don't want to discourage people who are really looking for answers and for self-help to avoid supplementation because i think that there's a lot of things we don't work i would not say supplementation does not work most of the time i would say meh most of the time nobody knows there are hints so follow the hints and try for yourself can I ask one quick follow-up question there on the the look for the hints and try for yourself? I'm forgetting his name, and I'm, I'm happy to look it up, but perhaps you know it off the top of your head. There's a professor at Harvard School of Public Health that I want to say in 2019 or maybe it was even 2018 ran a series of studies on common supplements and found something like one in four cause harm. Right. That, I, to me, go ahead. Yeah, I do. I vaguely recall it, but I don't remember the details. Yeah, so so let's and, and I and I can again, I can pull it up. We can put it in the show notes. But let's assume that that study had pretty good methodology and, and so on and so forth. And it also showed that what's in supplements or what supplement companies say is in supplements tends not to actually be in it. Um, I hear you about checking the the NSF certification, the Labdoor. By the way, I checked my fish oil while you were talking. It's Labdoor certified, so I took a sigh of relief. I'm not going to die of mercury poisoning in 30 years. Um, but what about that that risk, which to me is pretty substantial? Like that, you know, I'm I'm an experimenter. I'm happy to try. The reason that I stay away from those forums is because I think I will try, and then I kind of know that there's those studies in the background and it's like, Ugh, you know, the, the, if the promise is really that bold, then how come they're not being studied in double blind clinical trials and turned into medications? Um, I'm not like super up on the economics of it, but I have a educated guess, which is like the economic incentives are not there. Supplements, some, a lot of things were review, especially those fancy, like new things that try to generate a lot of press or a lot of buzz. Like when you take a look at the studies behind them, they're often, very clearly designed in order to, I don't know exactly how often, but too often, they're clearly designed to get a positive answer. So you could then, they could put the scientific study on the website, which nobody's ever going to read or analyze um, and say, this is clinically studied. Um, 
So the motivation's not there. And it takes a lot of money and time and experience to run trials. Um, and a lot of supplement companies are small. They don't have the funding. Um, and that's why supplementation, like when pharmacy students come in to examine, take a look at the evidence base for supplements versus drugs, it's garbage. Well, it's not garbage. It's not as good. It depends on the place. But a lot of studies really are garbage. And even meta-analyses um, can add to the noise. A lot of meta-analyses should not be done. There's no motivation to do them. And there's when they're done, they're not done well. It's to pad publishing. So for the most part, I think it's that the incentives are misaligned. Um, I, in an ideal world, we would see it. Like there's great research that's being government funded, but there's so few and far between. Cosmos Mind, I believe, was and Vital, the vitamin D and fish oil trial. That was a brilliant study and it's unfortunate we don't have stuff like vital being run there are things you could critique about vital which took a look at major outcomes for cancer and heart disease um, with vitamin d 2000 iu and one gram of fish oil that was a mix of epa and dha and there are things to critique like one gram of fish oil and eh, uh, like it could have maybe gone higher um uh, but overall, like that's still a study that's giving, and it's giving some really interesting information. Like um, one of the uh, like one of the interesting take homes for vitamin D and a glimmer of hope that I've seen is um, that several lines of evidence weekly point to, and this is the evidence we deal with at examine.com, lines of evidence weekly pointing to stuff. It weekly points that vitamin D supplementation may decrease cancer mortality. It does not decrease cancer incidence, but if you have a family history of cancer, vitamin D could like boost it. So like th these well-designed trials um, help, but they're so few and far between because there's not the money and incentive to do so. Wow. Yeah. And you know, all that stuff's fascinating, right? My mind immediately goes to, or is it just that the type of person that is going to supplement with vitamin D is more likely to get cancer screenings and therefore they catch their cancer earlier and yes. that's their outcome. And maybe there's a way to control for that, but th this is what makes science so hard. Well, Vital was a randomized controlled trial, so it was implicitly controlled for it. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. Love it. All right, Greg. Thank you so, so much. Um, this was really fun. And I think that our listeners are going to be really appreciative. Um, I'm sure that many will go head over to examine.com right now. I would try to summarize at the end. What I took away from this is that outside of some of the basics that we covered, uh, whey protein, a creatine monohydrate, a daily, daily multivitamin, perhaps fish oil, so long as it has one of those certifications. Um, supplements are really about trying to solve a specific problem in your individual risk profile and what your own physician and the, the so-called medical establishment can or can't offer you. And if you're kind of at that last resort or near last resort, then it's just about a cost-benefit analysis and, um, and being really thoughtful and smart and at the very least, trying to ensure that what the supplement says is in it is actually in it um, using those certifications. I would agree Anything with that. Anything else to add? I would just add there are different philosophies. I think, like I uh, said to Steve uh, before we started recording, like uh, Kamal, our director, is a little like on his podcast and stuff, he's a little more pro taking certain things in general, um, and at least in his presentation of stuff. And there are different philosophies. If you want to be an experimenter just because you find it fun or you think it's an important enough thing, then your risk tolerance is different. My, my personal thing is I tend to be a little more conservative about things. I would prefer you solve a specific problem and try the more tried and true methods before going on, unless there are no tried and true methods available, in which case then go for it and experiment based on the limited evidence that's available. Um, but different strokes for different folks. I'm not saying everybody should do it my way either. Yeah, you're a kindred spirit. And for every Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus, there's a Tim Ferriss out there. So there's many roads to Rome. Um, but with that, we really appreciate you taking the time and um, thanks so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and expertise. Thank you for having me.